It is really reopening. It's the the, the potential that the market is, is providing to us, and it's the um, yeah, it's the people sort of being eager to meet again with uh, European players, Asian players. I mean, we're not the only ones who have been kept out. So it's really a um, a global marketplace uh, that is attracting global capital, and um, there's enough space for everybody. I would say. The A Fire Podcast at Expo Real. Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? leaders, and global citizens. For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. Okay, so here we are in the first Expo Real after COVID started. It's very different from many uh, conferences uh, that we've seen in the past. However, it's full of energy, dynamism, and uh, provocative thinking as always. And uh, chief among them, uh, Martin Bruhl, the chief investment officer of Union Investment Real Estate, um, and I, I can proudly say the former chair of AFIRE and uh, a wonderful colleague to work with, has agreed to sit down with me amidst his incredibly busy schedule here at Expo Real to talk a little bit about real estate. So thank you, Martin, for joining me on the remote AFIRE podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks, Gunnar. So, well, let's just start with kind of a ground setting, if you will, about uh, how you're looking at the current state of cross-border investment. Obviously, union investment has been very active in the United States uh, property markets. Um, how are we doing right now? What's happening? Obviously, we've been pretty much impaired by the travel bans and by um, all the issues which we've experienced the last 18 months. So I would say there's a lot of capital um, on the sidelines waiting to be allowed into the United States because it is, and, and you'll hear me probably say this twice today in this interview, it is the deepest, most liquid, most transparent and most professional real estate market in the world. And if you want to grow your assets, if you want to diversify your portfolios, uh, there's n not really a way around the United States of America. But uh, we've been kept out for a while. And as, to as of today, we still are in a way. Yeah, that's true. In until November 1st. Uh, with the, the, the laying down of some of those restrictions. I, I, I'm curious, so you, you said a lot of capital on the sidelines waiting to go in. What does that mean once, once things open up? Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me start with describing my peer group of um, European asset managers. I have for a long time tried to diversify their portfolios to um, overcome the home bias, uh, which they've had over decades. Um, and um, obviously, uh, we've made great strides in, 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 in buying in the United States, in going to Asia Pacific and everything. And the, um, the, these successes have been uh, put on hold in a way because the last 18 months, uh, in a big way, because money was flowing in given the interest rate environment, which we all experiencing in, in around the world, but also and very much so in the European um, Union and uh, the ECB kind of um, um, world, um, uh, we had to buy 
buy real estate uh, and put uh, our investors' capital to work um, and produce some performance because obviously liquidity doesn't get you anywhere these days. Uh, so we've actually gone backwards in diversification because we've uh, certainly underlined the home bias for the last um, one and a half years, buying heavily in the Eurozone. Um, in our sort of home markets um, and that is something that I know from my conversations here at Expo Real but also from our daily contacts with my peer group and competitors and friends in the market uh, we all want to go out and, and do what we've done uh, before the pandemic that is um, find um, a return, find a proper risk-adjusted return outside of our home markets because they have become extremely expensive um, because of that weight of capital that um, that was really kind of focusing on, on, on our home markets altogether. So that's a lot of capital on the sidelines waiting to be deployed. Um, you need uh, certain um, circumstances for this and conditions and that is free travel. Uh, both ways, not just one way, which uh, I always found a bit um, astounding that uh, uh, the planes were packed uh, by pe by Americans going back to the United States whilst there was one or two seats uh, for European there. So that's something which uh, thankfully is going to be uh, coming to an end and that will actually unleash um, 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 the, the peer group of uh, asset managers um, back to the United States, hoping that they find the opportunities um, they're looking for. Well, it's really striking as much as everyone, I think, is really excited about the fact that they were able to do a lot of things virtually uh, as we were all being locked down at different times in different countries. Um, real estate, I think we've all discovered, is actually a very physical, very in-person business. It requires us to go there to a certain extent. Absolutely. <laughs> With fiduciaries, I mean, you can buy billions of uh, stock and fixed income on a, on a in front of a screen, but uh, we all know that real estate, and we wouldn't buy a, an apartment or a holiday home, wouldn't we, without having seen it? Um, and therefore, um, the physical nature, but also it's it's a people's business. You don't win an auction by just uh, being a guy who's been on a virtual Zoom call for something for some time. You know, you have to be there, meet people, but also inspect real estate and do a proper due diligence because we're all fiduciaries uh, for other people's money. So therefore, uh, that's been really something which is, um, has some um, hindered us from from doing our jobs. Um, even uh, back in Europe, we had um, to, um, you know, you know, go by car. Uh, couldn't fly for a while. We, we all know this. I think we've overcome this now. But um, we certainly it's a physical asset, and we need to inspect and meet the the vendors and the the protagonists of a transaction. And, you know, so many people over the decades have talked about how institutionalization of real estate and real estate investing has led to a kind of commoditization of real estate. And I don't think we're there yet. I think if you if you look at how we invest and the information that we're gathering that's not just something we can get on a screen, that we're not quite at commodity status in terms of what we do with real estate. Not at all. And also, I think that the um, disruptions we've seen before the pandemic, when it came, for example, to online uh, retail versus offline, uh, the disruptions in, in the way people increase density in office space well before the pandemic, um, and look at what the market uh, is doing now. I mean, there's all sorts of asset classes which are um, sort of the flavor of the month. You know, logistics now, people have all, everybody has discovered logistics. Uh, people have discovered grocery and uh, um, retail. So it's a real shift in preferences. And uh, sadly, um, uh, not everybody is a, is a first mover. Many of us are sort of early adopters at best, but some of us are just lemmings following into the logistics sphere now or in the, uh, as I said, grocery anchored retail sphere, which has seen record prices. So it's, um, it's an interesting uh, market uh, and far away from being commoditized, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, when you look at um, 
at, at, at these asset types such as logistics that have aroused so much interest and continued. It seems like it just kept growing throughout uh, the pandemic. Um, where do you think perhaps there's there's perhaps too much enthusiasm? Where is there not enough yet enthusiasm in terms of property types, uh, especially in the U.S. markets, but generally? I mean, I think we're all kind of in the same spaces. It's all about this story about alternatives, you know. And yeah. when you talk to my fixed income guys in union investment, they would still call real estate an alternative asset class. I mean, for me, it's my bread and butter business for 30 years now. So I, I would refrain from calling it an alternative. But within this established asset class of real estate, we have alternative uses. Um, and there's different degrees of maturity. I sometimes would like to be a bit more courageous with the capital I represent, but I cannot because the capital has its preferences in terms of risk return. Um, but um, if you look at healthcare, if you look at, um, at um, uh, certain forms of living, which are not the standard kind of uh, multifamily or hospitality, I think there are uh, areas which I think um, are underdeveloped, uh, which don't show the liquidity that classical core investors like us would actually uh, prefer. So there's a lot of scope for moving this industry forward into um, use classes that uh, currently classic uh, institutions wouldn't touch. I mean, there's this data center thing, which I remember back in 2001 was a big, 2000 rather, yeah. was a big thing. And then the bubble burst and uh, it calmed down a bit, but it's definitely something which we've seen uh, this digitization spree that we've um, all witnessed um, um, thanks to or uh, because of the pandemic is something that opens up horizons for investors uh, way beyond the classic food groups that we have currently played in. I, you know, you were mentioning, and I, I, and I want to make sure I don't, I, I don't misrepresent what you were talking about in terms of new forms of residential. But there's been so much conversation at AFIRE uh, with the with the Summit Magazine and with the podcast and elsewhere around that place in between hospitality and and multifamily. And part of what I find striking about that, and Dora Poleg actually wrote about it as well in his future casting book on real estate, is this idea that that's actually not new. That that weird new thing is actually how all people lived in cities in 1900. You know, in New York, you didn't have apartments, you had hotels. Um, that was it. Uh, that this is something that's kind of a back to the future sort of thing, and yet it's still seen as kind of strange or weird because we aren't used to it. Is that what you were talking about, or is that something that you've got some beads on at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's back to the future in a certain way for certain types of living, and I like that sort of um, uh, generic term living rather than residential because um, it involves various degrees of services, various degrees of convenience that people are looking for. Uh, but then again, you can't just rely on um, small apartments and micro apartments being um, sort of the future because we've seen that people with now 40, 50 percent, even in their employment contracts um, of remote or mobile working, uh, they will probably look very carefully at their micro apartment in terms of uh, can I sort of work two days a week in that because some of them have actually suffered tremendously, especially if there's kids around or, or, or pets or what have you. So, so therefore, uh, what is the right um, design of, um, of a, an apartment? Uh, what do you need? What do you need a working room separately in these things? So it's all a moving target, but it's fascinating and opens up different, different uh, as I said, horizons for investors to uh, position yourselves in, in the right uh, sphere here. But it's certainly something that we've probably seen. You can't reinvent real estate every day. Yeah. Um, and um, the question is how to position yourselves in that sort of um, residential um, sub-market. No, I think, it, and it's also so illustrative of the way that you and a lot of your colleagues think as representatives of institutional money that 
we have to watch this. We may not jump into it right away. We may wait just a little bit to, to understand where those things are. Well, that's what I meant about f either first mover or an early adopter. I mean, I'd rather be an early adopter. I don't think that um, uh, core investors have the capital at, at hand uh, to be first movers into um, new universes of real estate, yeah. but to be an early adopter, to watch the markets carefully, which is, again, why you need to speak to people at, at conferences like this or <laughs> at an AFIRE dinner uh, yeah. and, and, and learn from others and, and, and connect, which is uh, uh, the main message we had the other day in Washington, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, and it, it, there, there are so many aspects of connection that are essential for us to just do our jobs and understand and be able to kind of get feedback and see, am I off? Am I on? Where are we? You know, what does this mean? Um, well, what when you look at the, the, the different property types, that's one thing, but are there particular cities or regions that are attractive to you or not attractive to you at this point? In the United States, of course, we've classically invested um, um, from sea to shining sea on both coasts and obviously also in certain 24-hour uh, cities, Chicago, to mention a very important one for you, Gunnar. The, um, uh, the um, tendency has been the past few years and will continue, and this is, again, this is not rocket science, is to go into secondary tertiary markets, um, uh, looking for a bit more yield maybe, f looking for diversification again, um, and also benefit from what Tesla is doing now. Even Tesla moving um, from uh, Silicon Valley to, um, to, to Texas. We've done this uh, for years now. We've invested in places like, like Austin, Texas, Texas, um, um, because of you know government, uh, education, research, um, um, all these sort of um, pillars of, uh, of of a growth market with growth of population, growth of jobs, um, and uh, that's something we're looking at. We're looking into multifamily in the Sunbelt markets, um, and we continue to look into the right um, grocery anchored retail. Again, um, following a bit the herd, but um, why not? <laughs> uh, we've got twelve or so billion uh, dollars worth of uh, shopping centers um, around the world, so we're looking into a bit more smaller units and uh, and uh, the stuff which is non-discretionary spending, which I think is, is, is um, a lesson learned from the pandemic. Um, but the U.S. generally have so many um, different tiers and sizes of cities and markets. Um, it's, as I said, the, the deepest uh, and the widest market really, and therefore um, something we can't avoid. We need to play on. When you think about um, how cross-border investing in the U.S. has evolved over the last 20 years and, and how it might be operating right now, what do you think it's going to look like 10 years from now? <laughs> um, I think we're going to see um, professionalism um, grow um, in the way transactions are being carried out. We'll see probably speed of transactions be becoming more um, um, aggressive still the US um, in terms of um, auctions and the, the speed of transactions is something which sometimes um, shocks Europeans to be honest um, because it is such a, a liquid um, a transparent market and uh, uh, I think um, it'll continue on that path um, I think digitization is going to help uh, in terms of the way we look into data rooms to do diligence and everything so it's um, it's going to be a faster um, even more professional, high-speed market going forward in 10 years' time. And I think it's going to be uh, diversified in terms of the holding structures, the ownership structures, more towards uh, Asian and European investors than we see today. I think we're going to catch up um, in a big way yeah. in the next 10 years, what we've lost the last, say, two years, and um, um, benefiting from all the good sides and good aspects I've just mentioned mm -hmm. about the U.S. When, 
obviously as as a fiduciary and an institutional investor, you have a you know a keen eye towards risk. And you know, there, there's a tendency for all of us to talk about the same risk at the same time. But is there something that you think perhaps uh, we are not looking at enough that we need to pay closer attention to in terms of risks going yeah, forward? Yeah, I you know I look at risks a lot. Um, it's uh, fascinating. It's scaring, um, and it's obviously something that we need to uh, try and be on top of um, in every decision we make in our in our um, industry. Um, sort of. 9/11 was a shock, but it was terrorism, which was on everybody's list. And uh, obviously, we, we've we've seen um, the financial crisis, which was called a black swan, but but it was something that everybody a, a global financial meltdown was something people had on their lists of, of a potential um, massive event. Uh, the pandemic has been has been on the list of um, risk managers um, uh, for years now, and it's happened. Uh, I think we don't pay enough attention to, but how can we? We have to kind of try and build resilient portfolios. But I think a, a cyber um, attack in, in a big way. We've seen small pockets of cyber attacks. That is something which keeps me up at night. I think there are um, risks around there that we need to overcome by protecting our portfolios and therefore our investors' wealth uh, by diversification. Uh, scale is something important and take all the measures in the very buildings to make them smart, yes, but not overly smart, not overly dependent. So I think uh, building information systems with redundancy similar to a, um, a commercial airline, yeah. airplane rather, is something we need to really take into account. So I think we are getting more vulnerable the more digitization we promote. Um, and that is for me one of the top risks which, which we see a complete shutdown of uh, uh, strategic um, um, infrastructure buildings that are so smart that they are getting very dumb suddenly when somebody um, hacks them. Um, this is something we need to be very careful and mindful of. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I can't leave it on that. Uh, what are you most excited about um, right now? The reopening of the United States borders, honestly. Um, firstly, we, we, we love the U.S., um, uh, Germany and our European friends. We love the U.S. We like the people. We like coming there. But it's our job to actually deploy capital wisely and with a proper return for our investors. Therefore, we need the U.S., I'm excited about that. Um, I'm a bit worried about um, certain uh, tendencies within the United States politics, um, economics, um, uh, this sort of government shutdown, which was kind of a ritual again, but it's something which is, um, 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 yeah, it's it's, it's um, at least uh, it makes you frown over back in back in Europe. Uh, this this ritual of uh, refusing to to pass sort of uh, these acts. Um, and there is this uh, this cycle of four-year election, and uh, maybe uh, the pendulum swinging in the wrong direction. I would say, and I mean it, wrong direction again. It's uh, such a divided country, uh, polarized country, um, worse than what we see in Europe, which is already quite bad in, th in certain countries. I mean, Brexit didn't come about for nothing, but I think the political risk um, is something which one needs to be mindful in the United States because that's. Um, um, four years um, can go by very quickly. And, and it is a meaningful risk, and it's something that has to be paid attention to. Uh, we've been talking a lot with Yardi on that let very topic. But let me be excited. I mean, I, you yeah. asked me about something positive and exciting. It, it is really the reopening. It's the, the, the potential that the market is, is providing to us, and it's the... Um, yeah, it's the people sort of being eager to meet again with uh, European players, Asian players. I mean, we're not the only ones who have been kept out. So it's really a, um, a global marketplace uh, that is attracting global capital. And um, there's enough space for everybody, I would say. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's missed. I mean, that, that diversity at a conference like this or a conference uh, at AFIRE where you have people from all over the world, there's something pretty special about that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. 
Well, uh, I, think, I think we've taken up as much time of yours that we're allowed. So thank you for uh, spending so much time with us here today. And uh, thank you for being a part of the AFIR podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.